Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Burn. Tonight, he got the wrong price on The Price is Right, and it cost him an all-expenses-paid six-day trip to what was billed as beautiful Canada, the lower mainland city of New Westminster, B.C., to be exact. But the city's tourism board decided to clutch a marketing victory from Philip Fitzpatrick's loss, tracking him down in Arizona and offering him the trip that he missed out on. We meet both the retiree and the head of the tourism board that turned his wrong to right. Inflation is coming down, and so is food inflation, but it's still high at 5.4% year-over-year in October. The federal government has been putting pressure on big grocers to tackle high food costs. One of them has now announced a price freeze to the end of the year. Is that pressure actually paying off? Will it make a difference? We find out. We continue our look into chronic pain and the search for relief, this time with one of the country's foremost medical experts on pain and pain treatment, and find out why it took so long for the medical community to start focusing on the causes and impacts of chronic pain. But first, the Trudeau government offered up its fall economic statement today, trying to walk the very fine line between fiscal restraint and delivering on some much-needed and urgent promises, such as more affordable housing, uh, through cracking down on tax claims around specific short-term rentals, for example, and more money for construction of new rental units. So did they deliver? We find out. Let's begin tonight, though, with some breaking developments in the seven-week Israel-Gaza war. The Israeli government voted this evening to accept a hostage release deal with Hamas in exchange for a multi-day truce and the release of 150 Palestinian prisoners. Uh, Here's ABC's Matt Gutman with more from Tel Aviv tonight. After 46 days of agony, top Israeli officials voting to finalize a deal to free more hostages held by Hamas. That tentative plan includes the release of about 50 of the 236 hostages, civilian women and children, in exchange for a four to five day pause in fighting and the release of about 150 Palestinian prisoners held in Israel. There's ABC's Matt Gutman in Tel Aviv tonight. So a pretty big breakthrough, at least temporarily, uh, in this ongoing conflict. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, though, before the cabinet voted uh, earlier this evening that the war would continue even if a deal was reached. Israel, the U.S., and Qatar, which mediates with Hamas, have been negotiating for weeks over hostage release, or a hostage release, which, again, uh, was paired with a temporary ceasefire in Gaza. Joining me now with more on this is Oral Braun. He's a professor of international relations and political science at the University of Toronto and an associate at the Davis Centre at Harvard University. Oral, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Now, this had been rumoured for quite a while. I wonder what uh, finally allowed it to to break through. There are so many elements in this that made it extremely difficult. Obviously, given the terrible suffering of the families of the hostages and the hostages themselves, of course, and the fact that, according to Israeli sources, Hamas has already murdered two of the hostages, there was urgency in the release of this uh, group. And this is only a partial hostage release. is certainly to be welcomed. At the same time, we need to understand that this is a deal with a terrorist group that has committed the most unspeakable horrors of raping women, of uh, burning entire families, of decapitating babies, and then celebrating all of that and then promising to do this over and over again. And it is a group that has never kept a ceasefire in the past because we know that on October 6th, there was a ceasefire, and then Hamas engaged in this mass butchery. And it is a group that that was described by the Secretary of Defense of the United States 
a seasoned military man who had fought ISIS as worse than ISIS. Right. Uh, that being said, I mean, clearly, I mean, and we can get into the to the long history of what's been happening in in that in that part of the world. Uh, this, you know, unlike ISIS, this isn't sort of a rogue group that moved in. Uh, but obviously, both sides get something out of this. So, what does Israel get? They get back uh, at least fifty hostages, and this includes, for example, a three-year-old girl whose uh, family was murdered. This is uh, the latest that we have. In the case of Hamas, uh, we just don't care that much about their own people, but they care about symbolism and they care about their own survival. They get a four-day pause, uh, a four-day ceasefire, essentially, which they hope then would lead to a longer ceasefire as they uh, allow possibly for a trickle of hostages to to be returned. And there's a built-in mechanism here that if they release another 10, then they could have another day, and another 10, another day. And what they want to do is to survive, because as they said, their purpose is to survive and do the same thing over and over again until they would manage to exterminate uh, Israel. And of course, right. they have the support of Iran, and uh, they have the support of Hezbollah, and they have the support of the Houthis. So it's an extremely dangerous situation, but Israel had very little choice in this case, because they want to get as many of their people back, and uh, uh, this, in uh, that sense, it is a positive development because uh, uh, it is the lives of these hostages. All lives are important, but here, these are people right. who are entirely innocent. What could a three-year-old uh, little girl have done? Right. Uh, obviously, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is in, in, a dif- in a difficult situation as well. He's excessively unpopular right now in Israel, blamed for what happened on, this, on the 7th, and perhaps rightly so, in many ways as an intelligence failure. Certainly his ability to divide the country and to act in his own self-interest while this was going on has been part of the problem. So what does, uh, what does Hamas get out of this as well? I mean, how can either of these sides have a modicum of trust in each other? It's very difficult uh, to trust Hamas, but in the case of Israel, we're looking at a government. It's not just Netanyahu. Everything you said about Netanyahu may possibly be correct. And at the end of this conflict, there will be a reckoning. There will be undoubtedly a commission set up. And uh, it's uh, highly likely that Netanyahu is not going to survive uh, in this position. But this is a government decision. And uh, Israel is a democratic state. So when they reach an agreement, there's transparency. On the other side, there is no moral equivalence. We are looking at a terrorist group that has not kept its word. We're looking at a terrorist group that has no regard for human life, a terrorist group that uses its own people as human shields, that builds uh, tunnels and uh, uh, stores arms under hospitals, and this is verified by American intelligence, that uses mosques to uh, 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 house rockets and so on and so on, and right. this is part of the problem. That the, and the psychological torture that Hamas has been able to employ using these hostages is likely to continue because this is only a partial release. Right, indeed. Uh, I don't disagree with you as well. Of course, Israel has been under increasing international pressure and behind the scenes from the Americans as well to at least allow for some sort of humanitarian pause. I mean, obviously, countries such as Canada have been asking for it. The Americans behind the scenes have been asking for it. I think there was a certain discomfort amongst Israel's Western allies about the, the scale and scope of the destruction in Gaza and the fact that innocent civilians, whether they were being used as shields or not, were in the were there and suffering. Um, 
is there any chance that that the pressure from the international community on this will continue once this pause is done? The pressure very likely is going to continue because Hamas has been very, very clever in the way they so cynically use their population. And this is why moral clarity in war is so important. War is a terrible, terrible thing. It should be avoided at all costs. And this war was imposed on Israel. And just some days after the horrific events of uh, October 7th, the main democratic states, United States, uh, the UK, France, Germany, Italy, got together and they issued a statement which basically said first that this was a just war, that Israel had the right to defend itself and had an obligation to defend itself. And second, that Hamas did not represent the people of Gaza or of the Palestinian population, that they brought nothing but bloodshed and terror. In other words, that Hamas had to be removed. It was that moral clarity. And uh, our government appeared at first to sign on to that. But as the war continued and we get these images uh, that uh, are indeed terrible and all loss of life is to be mourned, that's where there has to be a distinction in terms of intent, Uh, whether you could fight a war without any casualties. We know that in the case of Mosul in Iraq, it took nine months and a huge number of casualties. We know that when we collectively, NATO, intervened to stop the slaughter of Kosovo Albanians in 1999, civilians killed on a bus, on a bridge, an embassy was attacked. There is no magical solution. If any Western leader has some kind of magical solution where you can get rid of Hamas and do so without casualties when they're hiding in all these places, when they continue to fire rockets, over 10,000 rockets, that uh, Western leader should have a responsibility to explain what the magical solution is. Oral Braun of the U of T and Harvard is with us this half hour. We're talking about a a truce negotiated, or at least the approved by the Israeli cabinet late today between Hamas and Israel, uh, which would see a four-day ceasefire and the release of hostages um, on one side, about 50 Israeli hostages, women and children being held by Hamas in Gaza, and roughly 150 Palestinians being held in Israel, uh, also women and children, it seems. Of course, this is all, you know, this has been since October 7th now since Hamas's uh, attack on southern Israel killed 1,200 people. And, of course, 240 hostages were taken, still, still many of them left still in captivity, which continues to be a front and center issue for a lot of people in Israel and obviously a pressure point for the Israeli government as it continues this war in Gaza. Uh, Oral, where to from here, then? I mean, we, we have this... this temporary truce in place. Uh, it feels like perhaps more humanitarian aid will be able to get in to Gaza at this point, maybe. Uh, at the same time, you mentioned, as you mentioned, Hamas continues to hold something like 190 other hostages. One imagines those will continue to be used as bargaining chips, and the Israeli government will continue to face pressure to get them home safe. The Israeli government will face enormous pressure, both from the inside and from the outside. And as Benny Gantz, who joined the uh, Netanyahu government because he felt it was an obligation during conflict to show unity, even though the two of them obviously uh, uh, differ on so many fundamental uh, issues, said that this was uh, a very, very painful and very difficult decision because Israel does need to abide by this, but Hamas will not operate in the same uh, kind of fashion. And of course, the release of uh, Palestinian prisoners is not a morally equivalent matter because these were people who were arrested for engaging in some kind of violent act or threat. 
Uh, I think it was. I think it was women and children. If I read correctly, though, Oral, before let me stop you. I think it was women and kids, though, as well. I mean, listen, it's yeah, hard to find. They, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe we could we could, we could stop sort of relitigating the causes because I think everyone understands what's going on here. I'm just really interested in what happens with this temporary truce. Um, when it comes to an end in four days' time, first of all, what will you be looking out for then in these four days? Clearly, Hamas can't really be trusted to abide by a ceasefire. Um, but what will you be looking out for over the next four days to see? if this does or doesn't, can't or can't hold for further? Well, we're going to, to see uh, if Hamas will uh, have a trickle of other prisoners, uh, hostages that they're going to release, and what will be uh, the cost that they ask for, and what happens to the vast number of other prisoners, and how do we try to create this kind of moral equivalent? This is why, you know, when we talk about children, uh, you can say that someone who's 16 years old is a child, uh, who has engaged right, in some illegal right. activity, but, but not a three-year-old. Right. Uh, so once, once again, once again, we're back to re- we're back to relitigate we're back to relitigating, which I didn't well, want to do. So, but let me let me let me move you on here. Let me yeah. move you on for a second. What so what what then? Then I mean, I mean, clearly there's been a cause for some sort of pause in all this. We know what the situation is. Israel clearly isn't done what it set out to do in Gaza yet. Well, this is where we have to look at the strategy. The strategy which was outlined. By, and not just Israel, but, but by the democracies, where there was that uh, that uh, clarity about that this was a just war and that Hamas had to be removed. And what Hamas is trying to do through all sorts of manipulation, uh, through, again, the notion of moral equivalence, to, to basically try to survive and then do, again, what they're going to do, uh, what they have done. And that's what we have to watch for. If Hamas survives this, if they remain in charge in one form or another in Gaza, this will not be just a disaster for Israel. This will be something that will present a grave danger to the rest of the world because it would establish a precedent. The precedent would be that a large terrorist group can commit the most horrific uh, right. Uh, once again, though, I mean, I mean, I mean I th- again, again, we, again, we're now, now we're back to relitigating, <laughs> relitigating the the overall aims of the war. I'm just curious. I mean, do you think that Israel will has the job is unfinished? So this this we will see fighting continue. You think? Uh, if uh, uh, Israel does not get back the rest of the hostages, if Hamas is about to stay in power, and I, I'm sorry, uh, it's not relitigating it; it's trying to get some clarity. If, right? No, no. Uh, I think everyone's very clear about what's. Well, I think everyone's clear about what how this war, how this all began, and what Hamas is. I think what I was really interested in finding out is what does this truce represent instead of sort of going over the history of Hamas. But I, I get well, it. I mean, this, I mean, is, this yeah. is where we have to. This is where we have to find out whether this is going to lead to a ceasefire that saves Hamas or whether this is a temporary truce to get the hostages back and right. Hamas uh, has to vacate Gaza and then we can move on to see what kind of agreement can be reached, whether they can move on to a two-state solution and so on. And that is the larger picture. If we lose sight of that larger picture, uh, then it's not a matter of we litigate, relitigate. It's a matter of whether we're just giving up and we don't see right. that big picture and what the dangers are. And so uh, uh, here, any human being who cares about uh, life will welcome the release of, uh, of hostages, uh, it is, and yes. none more so than, than the people of Israel. Absolutely. But I mean, we've spoken to hostages' families. Or I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. You're welcome. 
the Liberal government have suddenly taken a very big interest in affordable housing, obviously. They've been uh, had the gears put to them on affordability issues, by, certainly by the Conservatives over the past while. And uh, they're struggling a little bit to catch up. So the economic statement acknowledges the cost of living crisis weighing on Canadians, uh, but offers just a few measures to try to tackle it. Because, of course, uh, they're trying to keep deficits in check. They spent a lot of the money they were already going to spend, so there's not a lot left in the kitty to tackle some of these big societal issues that they find themselves facing right now. We talked about this yesterday with Goldie Heyer of uh, the Council of Canadian uh, the uh, Council of Canadian Business. I'm going to get that acronym wrong. Um, but the Business Council of Canada, rather, uh, that, you know, the finance minister was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place of their own doing, for, in all fairness, uh, just didn't have a lot of money to tackle some of the stuff. They're still um, going to have a deficit of $40 billion this year. That's not much changed since uh, the forecast back in the spring when they put the budget out. Uh, deficits are shrinking, but not disappearing over five years. So a little bit of maneuverability here, but not a whole lot. So where is the finance minister going to spend this money? Well, well, affordable housing is a big one. Uh, so that means an extra billion dollars into an affordable housing fund and another $15 billion to top up Canada's existing $25 billion program for low-cost rental construction financing. Uh, here is Christy Freeland. Housing is so connected to affordability for Canadians. And that is why our focus is supply, supply, supply. Indeed. So uh, this is what they're talking about. They're going to try and add more housing. So the opposition, of course, were uh, la less than impressed for perhaps different reasons. Uh, Pierre Polyev says it's too little, too late. Jagmeet Singh says it's simply too little. They built fewer homes last year than were built in 1972, 50 years ago. And that was at a time when our population was half of what it is today. So we're building fewer homes now that we have 40 million people than we built when we had 22 million people. Given how serious that is, that people cannot find housing that they can afford, that people are not living in housing that's adequate for their family's needs, given how bad it is right now with housing, what the Liberal government has announced is not a budget, obviously. It's not even a mini budget. It is a micro budget. Indeed. So... Putting the politics aside, because obviously neither Pierre, well, perhaps Jagmeet Singh could have come out and said something supportive since he is uh, essentially in an agreement with this government, uh, which he could, you know, I suppose at the drop, at the drop of a hat, pull, pull his support for if he really didn't like uh, this budget at all. He did go on to point out that he thinks that a lot of the measures put in place were measures forced there by the NDP. So they're taking some credit for that. You could hardly expect Parapoliev to applaud a liberal uh, fall economic statement, obviously. So we thought we'd go to the, someone who follows uh, affordable housing a bit more closely to find out whether or not this actually delivers on the main gist of the promise, at least the spending part of this, not the fiscal prudence part of this. Ray Sullivan is Executive Director at the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association, and he joins me now. Ray, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Happy to join you. I, I guess you've all been in conversation. I mean, housing all of a sudden has become sort of top of the agenda for this government, this federal government. So I'm assuming that they were speaking to a lot of you to try to get some input over the past few months. Uh, just your reaction to what you heard today. Yeah, there's been a lot of a lot of activity and a lot of action over the past several months. And it's nice to see some of those things landing in the fall economic statement. So, you know, one of the, one of the biggest things, one of the things I'm most pleased to see is a, a new $1 billion fund uh, to provide grants for 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 nonprofit and co-op community housing for for new housing construction, that's that's an important win. There's more that we need to do together, but we're in the right track. Right, and then there was another 15 billion to the existing program for low cost rental construction as well. 
Yeah, and that's good. You know, and we need we need more rental supply. Period. That's a strong program that's geared toward private market rentals. We have to also make sure that what we're aiming for is the right kind of supply, so affordable supply. Particularly when you know a report came out from the Federal Housing Advocate just a couple of weeks ago saying there is a gap, a missing gap of 4.4 million homes affordable to people with low and modest incomes. That's the gap that we need to focus on at the same time. Yeah, that, that's that's just such an astronomically high number. I mean, anecdotally, when I look at it, and just from you know hearing from listeners and so on, the problem is not there aren't enough rentals out there. There are a lot of rentals out there. If you have three thousand dollars a month, right, that's the problem. Yeah, and you know, just just over the past week, I've heard three separate stories of people with jobs living in tents in three different cities in this country, right. When we see rents going up by more than 20% in the past year alone, offering rents going up by more than 20%, the people who get squeezed out are the people who are most economically vulnerable. And this is what's happening now. This is this is what we have to, to address. It's going to take a while to get out of this mess, but there has to also be some, some, some quick short-term measures to relieve the pain. Right. Is this one of them? Is a billion dollars into an affordable housing fund? Because when one talks construction, uh, you know, yeah. obviously it takes a while, right? Yeah. And that's that's looking toward the longer term or toward the medium term a couple of years away. You know, it takes a couple of years to build any kind of new housing. And we're, we're calling on the government. We're challenging the government to work with us to double the supply of community housing. And this is one step in that direction. But there's stuff that we need to do in the immediate term, you know, and researchers have shown that for every affordable home built with help from the national housing strategy programs, we're actually losing 11 homes at affordable rents in the private market. So we're trying to fill the bucket with more affordable housing, but there's a hole at the bottom of the bucket. And those are the kind of measures that can have a, a, a quicker or immediate impact. Yeah, There are properties for sale right now in the private market. And we know that those tenants are at risk when a new owner comes in and rapidly increases those rents. Yeah, you, you, I heard you refer to this in an interview as, as the hole in the bucket of the national housing strategy, yeah. which is essentially for every new unit, affordable unit you're buying. Uh, as you mentioned, you're losing, is it 11, 11 others sort of slipping off what would be considered affordable in this country? Is that because they're changing hands or because there be people are being rent evicted or is it simply because rents are climbing everywhere at, at this point? Yeah, it's a whole it's a whole combination of things. It's rents that we're renting at, in an affordable range that are no longer renting in that affordable range. And when the market goes up as fast as it is, there's an incentive for a landlord to displace a tenant so that they can, even under rent control, to increase the rent rapidly for the next person coming in. And uh, there's just no way that tenants can keep up. Incomes are not keeping up to rents. And this is this is what's causing a lot of displacement. This is causing insecurity. And frankly, it's causing a lot of harm, not just to, to the folks who are suffering from it, but it's causing harm to our economy. And this is where we need to look at solving the rental housing problem as part of the way we solve the broader economic problems that Canada's facing. Yeah, because as we were mentioning, a lot of what's happened is the people who find themselves out of what had been a relatively affordable rental unit simply cannot find anything near that, even within driving distance of where they're now living. And that's become a common, really a common horror story in many Canadian cities and other communities in the past year or so. Yeah, and the kinds of things that, you know, were becoming familiar in cities like Vancouver and Toronto are now becoming familiar in smaller towns as well. You know, I'm I'm hearing of, of tent encampments, and again, tent encampments that sometimes include people with working jobs in, in small communities from, from across the country. These are the people being squeezed right out of the rental market. So part of the solution is we need a greater supply of, of nonprofit and co-op housing to stabilize the rental market, which is something that's going to benefit everybody. 
How would that work? I mean, I've seen it work in, I mean, I lived in London for a while. There's all kinds of social housing in London, which has it always, now it doesn't mean that London is affordable, but it allows people to live and work in the, to live in the communities they work in often, or at least nearby. Uh, what would that look like? That would be simply buying up buildings that go on market. You allow nonprofits to buy them up and therefore you regulate the rents and so on. You, you create a stable housing supply for people with, with less money. Yeah, and we're seeing this in in BC with the Rental Protection Fund, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's there's 25 nonprofits that are pre-approved and lined up to be able to get financial support to buy existing rental housing on the market that we know would no longer be in that affordable range after it changes changes ownership. And this is the kind of stabilizing effect that that, that community housing has. Acquisitions is one of the ways to get there. New development is one of the ways to get there. We are one of the countries in the OECD with the lowest proportion of community housing in, in overall rental stock. Um, even big banks like Scotiabank earlier this year were calling on the government, challenging the government to double the supply of community housing. This is a big part of the solution to what we're facing. Was was there any of that? Because I, I haven't read through the entire document, but I didn't see that uh, in today's statement. There was nothing there about support for acquisitions, but there is interest. And, and, and Minister Sean Fraser has shown a great interest in this. I think the government wasn't ready to move on it today, but we're hoping that between now and the budget in the spring, that there'll be a lot more action on this. Ray Sullivan is with us this half hour, Executive Director of the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association. Happy with what he's seen uh, in today's fall economic statement. We knew there'd be a, uh, a focus on affordability and housing. Obviously, the government has been kind of telegraphing that for a little while now, but $1 billion, additional $1 billion into an affordable housing fund and another $15 billion to top up Canada's existing $25 billion program. There are other things around mortgages as well. I mean, just a lot of sort of anticipating where people are going, where people are going to find themselves precar- in a precarious housing situation, I guess would be the best way of putting it. I mean, it's it's been interesting to see the government all of a sudden very much take up this mantle of affordability in housing because it feels like they, they not that they ignored it for a while. Is that an unfair, unfair statement that it's become much more front and center in the last six months than it was for years previous and we're kind of paying paying the price of that? No, look, sometimes I feel like the little shepherd who cried wolf. I've been talking about an affordable housing crisis for more than 20 years in my career. And now there really is a wolf at the door and it's a big and scary one. So it's good to see the government focusing on this as a larger systematic problem. And, you know, there were there were some concrete things in the fall economic statement. There were some things that are welcome, but more symbolic, like like changing the name of the department to the Department of Housing infrastructure and communities. And that hopefully shows a long-term commitment to a more systematic approach to what we're dealing with. Clearly, the federal government can only go so far when it comes to housing. It's uh, municipal. You know, every level of government has their hands in this one. I, I suppose the, gov- the federal government's power here is to incentivize, and they're doing that to some extent right now. Yeah, well, and that's part of the problem we're facing, isn't it, is that responsibility for housing really is divided among three different orders of government. But when we're dealing with something as big as this, it's really the federal government has to step up and take the leadership role. We've been calling on the federal government to take a Team Canada approach, and the captain of that team is going to be the the federal government um, looking at you know, and there was some there was some stuff about labor market supply and 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 skilled trades for for construction in the budget as or the fall economic statement as well. And and I'm hoping that points to a a broader sort of industrial strategy for housing um, that's at play because really this is about taking a systemic approach to changing the way that we create housing and changing the kinds of housing that we create across the country. 
Right. And I think sometimes when things become politically uh, expedient for governments, such as affordability has become for this federal government, I, I, lay people like myself who don't follow it as closely, as, clearly as closely as someone like you would worry that this is just sort of politics, right? That they've decided, OK, we need to pay attention to this now because people care about this issue. But that under if you start to peel, peel the onion, that, that it starts to get less and less, less and less attractive as you go on. Do you feel like there's a real commitment here? Look, I don't think anyone across the country is is exempt from this. Everybody has a member of their family, whether it's a niece or or an aunt or a friend or someone that they know who is struggling right now, struggling to buy a home, struggling to keep the home that they have, struggling to find a new rental. This is broad and this is deep. I, I think and I hope that this is a sustained commitment. Yeah, I mean, it it feels like at least um, across government, whether it be municipal, federal, or or provincial, that there is at least acknowledgement of this issue. Now, this is a bit like, and and you mentioned it earlier because you've been talking, warning about it for twenty years. This is like turning around, you know, a, a liner, an ocean liner, right? This is a slow process. So I don't imagine we're going to see the impacts of this stuff quickly. The next few years are still going to be incredibly difficult, even if it's all hands on deck. Yeah, and that's why there has to be some immediate term measures as well. So, you know, like those people that I was hearing about with jobs who are now living in tents, where is something like an emergency rent allowance that can prevent that person from losing their home and falling into that falling into that hole? Where is something like support for an acquisition funds to allow nonprofits and co-ops to buy existing properties and stabilize those tenancies and preserve those those more affordable rents? These are the kinds of measures that we can see in the short term. One of the other things that was um, absent from the fall economic statement was a real commitment to looking at how federal land can be accessed by nonprofits and and, and co-ops. There's a lot of federal land, a lot of it suitable for development. Um, it should be given as a priority toward toward non-market affordable housing. Right, and 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 we've talked. We were talking about this last week, actually converting federal buildings into into affordable housing, yeah. which of course is in of itself is is a bit tricky, but it's out there too to be done. What did you make of the Airbnb, or sort of I should say, the short term rental crackdown? Another one that should <laughs> conceivably put a little bit more, at least more supply out there, perhaps. Yeah, that's important, and and you know a lot of long term rental housing has gone over to the short term rental market and has been a loss of of housing. That's part of that statistic. It's importantly a signal from the federal government to local jurisdictions about you know encouragement to regulate and limit the supply of those short-term rentals because it is a loss of real long-term housing. So for someone who's been sounding the alarm on this for two decades, um, were you pleasantly surprised or was it what you were expecting? It was along the lines of what I'm expecting. And you know, I've I've heard more from this minister engaging in the past several months. Um, and I know that there's more coming and we're continuing to push for for that much more. You know, it, it, as I said, it's an all hands on deck kind of problem to solve, and it's going to take federal leadership to get us out of it. Well, Ray, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. We continue a series we'll be doing all week looking into the very serious issue of chronic pain in this country. One in five Canadians, about 20% of us, uh, suffer from some form of chronic pain. Uh, That's pain that lasts more than three months, right? So if you have a bad back and it's chronic and it's painful, I mean, it comes in pain is hard to define sometimes, right? Oftentimes it's uh, up to each individual. But we know that a lot of Canadians are suffering through this. Um, We spoke to one of them last night, as a matter of fact, and we'll play a little bit of that interview coming up. Um, But we thought tonight we would try to get some, we wanted to get a medical perspective. Now it turns out, and I didn't know this uh, until recently, that um, 
the whole idea of a medical specialty studying pain didn't exist until very recently. I mean, obviously, we've been people have been suffering pain since the beginning of time, but we hadn't had a specialty within medicine to focus specifically on pain and pain management and pain relief and so on uh, until you know, in the last 10 years or so. Um, so last night we got this first person perspective. Maybe we should start there again. Uh, Lara Pingway was, was with us. She works for the Globe and Mail, but she'd written this long piece for uh, the publication on her back pain and what had taught her about chronic pain. Uh, part of what she spoke about after developing severe and chronic back pain in the summer of 2018 was the search for relief in the medical system, which she described at times as a very painful experience. When I um, was in the throes of it, when I was in the worst of it, I remember a coworker said to me, we were in a meeting and I couldn't sit during this meeting. And he looked at me and he said, you know, this won't last forever. And I thought two things. I thought, oh God, please be correct. And also, how dare you? Because I thought <laughs> he was minimizing it. And I think about that a lot because he was right, of course, nothing lasts forever. What he didn't say is, you know, you're going to be, ba- you're going to bounce back 100% be exactly who you used to be. Uh, I and mean, of course, that's not the reality. I do feel like profoundly changed by this. And even if you can't see it or don't understand it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah, my conversation with Lara Pingway last night. Of course, you can hear the entire series once it's been once it's done, but you can definitely hear last night's interview with Lara Pingway on the A Little More Conversation podcast at a littlemoreconversation.com or of course anywhere where you find your favorite podcast. We also had some listener feedback, a really nice email from Margaret Dory who wrote, "Ben, thank you so much for having your wonderful guest on talking about her experience with chronic pain following a seemingly innocuous back issue. I have been on a similar pain journey which also started with my back." for the past year. And it was so heartening to hear her speak about experiences that so similarly mirror my own. As a formerly reasonably active person, the list of things I am now unable to do or unable to do well can be daunting at times. But I hold tight to the belief that this will not be a forever kind of situation. Very much appreciate your interest in this topic. Well, Tonight, uh, Margaret, we're going to try to bring you, again, the medical point of view. Um, And again, as I was mentioning, pain has been with us forever. But within the medical community, it's not something that's been sort of looked at and focused on specifically until very recently. Dr. Hans Clark is Director of Pain Services and the Medical Director of the Pain Research Unit at Toronto's General Hospital. He's also the Good Hope Ehlers uh, Danlos Syndrome Chair in Translational Medicine. And uh, Dr. Clark joins me now. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for inviting me, Ben. You were mentioning this a specialty in pain, uh, at least for for physicians, is not is not new. What what got you involved in it? What was your interest? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, pain's been around since uh, humanity started. I think, as you said, it's only become a, a specialty uh, since 2016. I had always done, uh, uh, you know, had an interest in neuroscience. I was doing my master's at the time. I started uh, medical school. I thought I'd be an ophthalmologist or a you know orthopedic surgeon. And I gravitated to anesthesia because uh, it, it was really, you know, using medicines, really medicine in action. What we do is when something is important and someone's life's in jeopardy, we kind of jump in and, and do what we need to do to keep people alive. And so in that, you start to look at the nervous system and, and the brain and pain is completely uh, dependent on your nervous system and then how it's doing. And so that was just an interest of mine. And I landed kind of in the chronic pain space. 
Right. Uh, one of the one of the first, of course, because as you mentioned, it's a relatively new discipline. At least we, we've known about pain for a long time, but actually specializing in it. It's such a scary thing for so many people. Chronic pain. It's a difficult system for people to navigate, right? Because pain comes in so many. The, the, the word itself is so kind of broad that it comes in so many shapes and forms. It's one of the big issues as to why pain has never really been on the uh, on anyone's uh, radar, to be honest with you, Ben. You know, it's a symptom of having headaches. If someone has severe osteoarthritis, you could have pain after surgery, something I kind of talk about a lot that never goes away. Just the average back pain and someone has, you know, leg symptoms from that, that can be very debilitating. And, you know, stomach pain, think about living your life with chronic abdominal pain, ischemic limb pain, you can, be, you can have emotional pain. All of these things will cause your nervous system and your brain to to do uh, some very interesting things. And, and if at the end of the day, you're, you're not focused on this as an actual disease, which it is, it's a chronic disease. And uh, that, there you have the problem. So it's buried in a, as a symptom in so many other things that it's never had its own real showcase. Yeah, I mean, the, the woman we spoke to yesterday, Lara Pingway, sort of described entering the medical system looking for relief and how difficult it was because she called it, you enter a world of pain, pun intended, obviously. But it is a difficult one for people suffering from chronic pain to navigate because I suppose oftentimes it's related to so many other things. You don't really know where to start and diagnosing it can be difficult. So I think, you know, the biggest piece about pain is it all starts with an acute pain. And so you, something happens, uh, let's focus on, okay, okay let's focus in my, in my zone. So you have a surgical operation. At the end of the day, someone kind of sews you back together and off you go. And for 85% of the people, that's great. For about 10 to 15% of folks, though, they have some symptoms that linger. And the question is, when does that actually go away? Does it ever go away? And if it doesn't, when do you need to start to see a specialist? And so it's one of the programs that we built. It's our transitional pain program. And we know that there are specific signs that are going to cause people to have some issues. And if you have significant burning or electric shock-like symptoms that aren't going away, that's a problematic issue that needs to be recognized. And then you have to be sent to the appropriate you know, physicians that know how to treat this and, and help you move forward. The problem is most acute pain goes away. And that's the expectation. So quite often you'll see your surgeon or you'll see your primary care doctor say, well, just wait. And by the time you're actually sent to see someone, the system takes a while in Canada, obviously. It could be a six or eight month wait by the time you see someone. And what classically happened in the past is, you know, people would often be on a lot of opioid-based medications and have a hard time with that. And then you're really fighting the eight ball, you know, to, to get caught up to where someone should be. So the key is early recognition, understanding individuals that might run into trouble to develop a chronic pain problem and kind of nip it in the bud. And I suppose a lot of time this happens in situations where people are caught completely off guard by the sudden onset. And you mentioned, I think a lot of times it is an acute episode that then turns into chronic pain. But oftentimes they don't really know where to begin because they're not quite sure what's happened to them to begin with. Absolutely. And so the, the older you get, the more protective you protected you are from developing, uh, you know, an extreme emotion to pain because throughout your life you've probably come into interactions by the time you're, you know, 50, 60 years old where you've had instances of pain. But that first time you've ever dealt with a significant acute pain, uh, you've learned from it, your nervous system's recovered from it, and you've gone on to live and recover. You you aren't as worried about it. But if you're some one of the unlucky ones who has that acute pain that then persists and goes on to have a problem, it, it's problematic when that happens at a young age, because all you can think about is, I want to be back to where I was. And sometimes that's not possible. And, and the frustration too, because that's what I always hear is the frustration, because oftentimes 
people's it's not that people's pain isn't believed, but at least the the acuteness of it or the chronic nature of it isn't always taken seriously by everybody from family to friends to colleagues. It, it's a tough mentally. It's a tough one as well. Absolutely. I think acute gets a lot more sympathy than chronic because everyone appreciates, oh, you just had a motor vehicle accident. Oh, you just had a broken leg. That's painful and it's going to get better. Where people start to lose their empathy or for those who go on to continue to have pain and then they start to often suffer in silence because they feel they're becoming a burden to the folks around them. And, and you know, you can't see it. You can't touch it. But you, you are living with this condition that you're, you're really just trying to get back to a baseline to do your best and live your new normal. Dr. Hans Clark is a staff anesthesiologist and the director of pain services at the Pain Research Unit at the Toronto General Hospital. We've been talking, we're going to talk about a chronic pain and the search for relief all this week. Dr. Clark's offering some insight on this. He is one of those who specializes in pain. Uh, one of There aren't that many doctors out there in the country who do because it is a relatively uh, new speciality, at least. It's certainly not a new phenomenon. It's a new speciality. Um, Dr. Clark, I mean, I think one of the issues when we look back at the opioid crisis, for instance, something I know you've uh, looked at extensively, is this idea of the silver bullet, right? Often when we suffer something and and it's pain and, and we, we suffer pain and we're trying to find a way to get rid of it, we can be very much enticed to the quick fix. And I, I gather that that could be a real dangerous situation. Well, there's no doubt. And one of the things we have to realize across medicine in general is everybody wants the quick fix. Everybody wants that magic bullet or the silver bullet. You know, what's the one thing that we can all take and just get back, get on with it? And, you know, that's uh, unfortunately a, a part and parcel of what kind of happened with the opioid crisis and, you know, pain being the fifth vital sign and make sure that we take care of everybody's pain. And, you know, those opioids were, were quite a strong medication that, that you know, is very helpful in the acute pain setting, but we didn't monitor it up enough. And so uh, many people ran into trouble with that. So we know that there are really three tenets, Ben, to treating pain, right? One is how much exercise you do, how much physical activity you do, because we're trying to distract this nervous system that's sending this signal constantly to your brain. The second thing is your brain itself, meditation, yoga, all of these non-pharmacological things. And of course, the things that we can do, whether that's medication, injections, you know, uh, different therapies that we can that we can help patients find. And so it's really getting pieces of these three parts of the of the re- recipe together to so that everybody can function as best they can. Well, how much has the opioid crisis changed that third tier, that third prong when it comes to pain management now? Because I get the impression that a lot of uh, physicians and, and not perhaps specialists such as yourself, but others have become very reluctant now uh, and worried about the impacts of the, the so-called silver bullet. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's had a major effect, obviously, on the chronic pain community in particular. They've suffered some significant uh, unintended consequences. Physician practices have changed and shifted significantly as a consequence of this. But we're now kind of bouncing back then. So the pendulum had swung very far to the left. And people were really feeling, you know, uh, a lot of guilt about this and, and how we've gotten here. But it was really also now we've come to the understanding that the opioid crisis has been really also clouded by the illicit fentanyl and all of these products that have been contaminating that harm reduction space. And so, you know, we've lost 50,000 Canadians. That's a big number of Canadians. And from a physician standpoint, we have reduced opioid prescribing, but those numbers don't seem to be coming down. So there is a disconnect between the story that was sold completely that, oh, it was all physician prescribing that was driving this. And even patients are pushing back now who were really forced tapered sometimes off of their opioids and had really uh, sometimes 
adverse events happen as a consequence of some of this weaning that, you know, we've got to find a balance in here. And so how do we help those people that need them? And how do we ensure that the people that are going to struggle with them develop a problem, potentially develop an addiction or a misuse of these uh, medications and, and create pathways that we can keep people safer? Right. Because one thing that Lara brought up, of course, the best advice she ever was ever given was this too shall pass. And I guess with chronic pain, it's not uh, forever for everyone. And, and But it's just getting through those tough stages where it feels like it's going to be forever. That that must be the psychological part of it. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's so, and this is why it gets back to it being such a unique journey. And for some, that period of chronicity can be severe and then it can be mild. And I think, you know, Lara, as you said, also knows she's going to live with some level of pain, but potentially it will be a mild level and she'll learn to cope with it and move on with her life. Will she ever be completely zero? Potentially, but maybe not. And there are the unfortunate ones who live more with that moderate and severe amount of pain. And they're the ones that I think really need to you know, use some more of these non-pharmacological therapies as well as the medications that we, we give them to try to keep a, a more balance and, and stay psychologically sound. How should you begin your, your journey to relief then? Because there's obviously a huge industry out there on, on quick fixes. Where should you begin then if, you've, if you're suffering from this and, and wondering what to do? You know, the first thing I would say to someone who's out there and has a pain problem, there are often public resources that you can use. For example, in Ontario, there's now this progress over pain. And if you have an OHIP card, you can log in. The government bought this from one of our TAPME programs here. It was created by uh, Tanya Durena, one of the, the, the director of that program. And you can log in and take a course about understanding what chronic pain is, understanding the journey that's ahead of you. And of course, speaking with your primary care doc to get yourself into uh, a referral base for, you know, an academic program or, or a specialized clinic. With that being said, there are the, you know, the first steps, your non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, the basic medications, Tylenols, you know, potentially some early opioids and, and, and neuropathic pain meds, et cetera. Those are things that can be started early on. And then you start to understand how you put all of the pieces together to help yourself long-term while you get those referrals in, in motion. Well, Dr. Clark, it sounds like we're, we're at least finding out more uh, quickly uh, in this field. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, you're very welcome, Ben. The Liberals are, one of the things they're cracking down on is because they don't have that many things they can do around short-term rentals. They can go after the taxes, the existing rules on taxes when it comes to short-term rentals. So what they've decided to do is deny income tax deductions for short-term rental operators in markets where short-term rentals are banned, right? So it's a pretty straightforward thing. If you're in a community, uh, in, a, in a municipality where you're not allowed to have a short-term rental and you have one, you can't write it off anymore. You can't write off those expenses. This is supposed to be a disincentive to people doing this, and it's supposed to free up a certain number of uh, rental units for uh, people out there who need them. Here's what Christopher Freeland had to say. We'll be cracking down on short-term rentals listed on sites like Airbnb and Verbo which are keeping far too many homes off the market in communities and cities right across the country. Right. Christia Freeland there. Now, of course, we've seen a lot of targeting of short-term rentals of late. The um, Conference Board of Canada put out a, a report a little earlier this year that basically said uh, its presence in Canadian cities, Airbnb specifically, wasn't large enough to make a meaningful impact on housing affordability nationally, right? That being said, uh, there's been other studies that have shown in, in sort of big cities, for instance, uh, it could make a difference. So that's precisely what the feds are going after. So are they simply targeting something that sounds expedient politically, or will this actually make 
a difference. David Walksmith is an associate professor at the School of Urban Planning at McGill in Montreal. He's also spent years uh, looking into studying and researching the impact of short-term rentals, and he joins me now. David, thank you. Very good to be here. Well, interesting. I suppose from from your point of view, the fact that the federal government is is even looking at this is interesting because my how things change in a short period of time. But tell me a bit about how this this tax thing would work, because clearly they're trying to uh, put up disincentives for people uh, to basically hold short term rentals. Yeah, that's right. And it's also true that, you know, just a couple of years ago, we really only had cities in Canada um, looking at short-term rentals as a kind of a housing issue. We've seen that kind of spread up to the provinces and now the federal government. I think what the federal government has done here is they've decided they want to help um, discourage commercial short-term rentals that are taking housing off the long-term market. And they've looked at what is kind of reasonably in the federal toolkit. And, you know, kind of one of the big things that the federal government controls is tax, uh, the tax system. And so what they've, what they've announced in a nutshell is that um, if you were trying to run an Airbnb as a business in a location where that's illegal, then you're not going to be able to claim any of the expenses um, against uh, your income, which which effectively means in a lot of cases the kind like the financial incentive to operate a commercial Airbnb is going to vanish because you can you need those uh, those tax deductions to make the business work. Right. I I wasn't aware. I mean, this might be my own naivete, and I obviously don't have an Airbnb, but I was unaware that you could actually write claim stuff on your taxes if you were running what would technically be. I wouldn't want to call them illegal, but by at least a, an Airbnb that wasn't allowed to, or not, or short-term rental that wasn't allowed to be there. Yeah, that's right. And you know, this just gets down to the fact that we've got different levels of government with different responsibilities, right? You know, if the city says, you know, according to the zoning bylaw and according to municipal regulations, you're not allowed to operate a commercial short-term rental. You know, that doesn't say anything to the federal government. You know, they're just going to tax your income. And if you've got a bunch of income, but then you've got a bunch of business expenses, which could include, you know, mortgage payments, they could include, uh, you know, investments in the property. Um, you just claim those uh, those expenses, uh, even though the activity is not allowed by local law. And so what the federal government is now saying is, if it's not allowed by local laws, then it's also not allowed by federal laws. And it's going to put a real dent in the ability to make substantial money off of short-term rentals when they otherwise shouldn't be legal. Right. I suspect it's going to make a real dent for people who have lots of them, who are basically running hotels, right? Yeah, that's right. And that, you know, I think one thing that probably is just worth emphasizing, a lot of the way that the that this works as a business is, you know, you buy, say, two or three condo units, maybe you buy more if you can afford them. Um, you don't necessarily need to be making a ton of income because over the last you know decade in Canada, housing prices have gone up a lot. And you know, there's been a bit of a slowdown here, but you know, I think that's gonna continue in the future as well. Um, as long as you can cover your costs and maybe make a little bit of extra money, you're very content to be sitting on what is basically a kind of a huge growing investment, like that the actual property itself. But that really doesn't work if you can't cover those costs. And so if you're, you know, if suddenly you were maybe looking at tens of thousands of dollars of of tax breaks, basically, um, that are going to evaporate overnight, there are going to be a lot of people who say, you know what, I'm already breaking the law here and I know it. And I shouldn't be doing that, but it was too much money to you know uh, to resist. But now I don't have all that money coming in. Maybe, maybe I'm going to find a tenant or maybe I'm going to sell the unit to somebody who will find a tenant. And I think that's a really good thing. Right. I mean, their estimate, I guess, going back to, I think, 2020 was about 19,000 units uh, would be it, it just in Montreal, Toronto and Vancouver alone would be sort of violating local rules. And, and, and those ultimately, I suppose, could come back on the market, maybe. 
Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And, you know, the number is a lot higher now. You know, there are probably 50,000 homes across the country that are operating as commercial short-term rentals, something like that. Um, and, you know, a lot of those are are, are legal, right? I mean, uh, you know, many jurisdictions, all the big cities have pretty much banned commercial Airbnbs, but there's some places that haven't. But, uh, you know, it's clear which way the wind is blowing here, right? Uh, cities, provinces, they're cracking down more because, you know, unlike so many of the other ways we could solve the housing crisis, the thing about short-term rentals is there actually is a pretty quick and easy fix here. You know, we're talking about housing. You don't have to build it. You know, it's, it doesn't cost a bunch of money to, you know, a bunch of new construction. We've just got these apartments that right now are hosting tourists and tomorrow they could be hosting, you know, they could be housing for local residents. So I don't think it's a real surprise that the federal government wants to kind of get in on some of that action, so to speak. Right. And they're also providing some more money to municipalities, I gather, to carry this stuff out as well, trying to encourage municipalities to crack down more. Yeah, I, the issue here is that a lot of municipalities have rules that say you're only allowed to operate a short-term rental out of your own home. And that's a real, those are good rules. I mean, that's the best way to do this. But the problem is that the cities don't have an easy way of knowing, do you actually live there or not? You know, it might be a bit surprising, but that's not information that usually cities have. So they kind of have to trust you when you say, oh, yeah, it's my home. And if, if the city suspects it's not your home, they have to conduct a real investigation to kind of prove that it isn't. So that's time consuming. It costs a lot of labor power, a lot of money. And so what the feds are saying here is if cities are putting tight rules in place that are likely to get housing back onto the market, but they're lacking the resources to enforce those rules, then we're going to help out. And again, I think that's a, a smart approach to make just kind of raise the bar for what these rules look like across the country. Right. Because I, I guess we're trying to find a happy medium here, right? I don't think you can put that short-term rental genie back in the bottle. At the same time, it sort of took on a life of its own uh, that a lot of people were becoming increasingly co- uncomfortable with. Although, I mean, the Conference Board of Canada said that its presence in large cities wasn't big enough to make a meaningful impact on housing affordability. I suppose the kinds of units that were being put on the market for short-term rentals, rentals aren't necessarily the kinds of units that are necessarily needed, but I suppose every little bit helps uh, in, in your eyes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that the, you know, the the housing crisis that we've been facing in Canada, you know, there's so many causes here. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, the biggest issue is just there it hasn't been enough affordable housing out there for people who, who are looking for it, you know, and prices have gone up. Um, short-term rentals aren't the entire issue. But again, I just think compared to so many other problems, they're one where they're the low-hanging fruit, you know, they're the one where we've got some, some solutions. And I think that, you know, so much of the emphasis here has been, let's get the commercial short-term rentals off the market. That actually creates space for the home sharers. I think, you know, if you've got a spare bedroom and you'd like to rent it out for a couple extra bucks, or if you're out of town for a month and you want to rent your home, that's all good. You know, it's good for you. It's good for your community, actually. And that, that kind of activity has been made harder because you've got effectively what are hotels, you know, but they're they're not called that, operating on these platforms. They make it harder to do actual home sharing. So I think all these rules that are tightening up the restrictions on short-term rentals should actually make it easier um, for people who do want to make a little bit of extra money to pay the mortgage to rent out their home to do that. David Walksmith is an associate professor in the School of Urban Planning at McGill University. He's done a lot of work on the impact of short-term rentals on the housing market. Uh, some new rules today from the federal government in the fall economic update, including changes that would deny income tax deductions for short-term rental operators in markets where STRs are banned, right? Or where those hosts are flaunting the rules of their jurisdictions, as the the saying goes. Um, David, there's going to be an inevitable 
inevitable backlash because, of course, a lot of people who sort of, I mean, it's not all nefarious stuff. People maybe bought a condo or two and put them up on Airbnb, and this was sort of benefiting them too. So now there's been a bit of a backlash that this is too hard on people who made these investments and that flooding the market with these sort of small condos is going to be bad in the long run. Are there any concerns about just striking the right balance here? Yeah, I mean, I think that with every public policy issue, you you do want to make sure that, you know, you don't, let's say, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think, you know, speaking, first of all, about what the, the new federal announcement, one of the things that is very important about this is that the, the, the feds are saying that in areas where it's already illegal to operate commercial short-term rentals, you're all, then there's going to be additional financial penalties in the tax system. So in other words, in, in if communities have made the decision, they want to allow any type of short-term rentals, then nothing changes. And right. also in, in all the communities, you know, the, the, for example, throughout BC now, where you're perfectly allowed to operate a short-term rental out of your own home if you live there, you know, that nothing's changed there. Also, n- nothing changes here. The only people who are affected by this new federal crackdown are people who are already choosing to break the law um, and, and, and operate sh- short-term rentals illegally. Now, so, you know, so in that sense, I don't, I don't think there's a much ground for complaint here. Um, no. The, the issue might be maybe you know places are going too far. Is it possible BC is going too far with you know with its you know basically a kind of a ban on commercial short term rentals for most of the province? The reality is that short term rentals are a contributor to high housing prices, and that you know the, I think what communities have learned is that the costs outweigh the benefits for the on the commercial side of things. For home sharing, it's a different story. I don't think we see any places in Canada that are making it harder to be a home sharer. What we see is places making kind of saying, let's have more of that home sharing. Let's have less of, you know, the full apartment conversions, those kinds of things. Right. I mean, certainly, I mean, last I spoke to, I think we first spoke maybe six, eight months ago, even in that period of time, I've noticed a significant shift from policymakers and how they're approaching short-term rentals. I mean, sometimes you get a lo- you get a little suspicious because it feels like it might be an easy sort of low-hanging fruit for, yeah. for policymakers and politicians specifically. And sometimes their policies can actually be done too quickly and, and completely throw, you know, go, as you pointed out, go, go a little too far. But wow, what a, what a ground shift we've seen of late. Yeah, you know, and I think that it's it, it's certainly true that if this is still what we're talking about in another couple of years, then even I'm, you know, I'm somebody who's done research on this for a long time now, even I'm going to start feeling a bit suspicious because, you know, one of the things about low-hanging fruit is you have to pluck it, you know, <laughs> but once you've plucked it, 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 it's, you, it should be off the tree, right? So yep. I think it's very reasonable that we see governments kind of, you know, kind of all collectively wake up and say, this is low-hanging fruit, you know, let's get, let's, let's pluck it. But then that also means that, you know, that's going to make a difference. It's going to help, um, but it's not going to solve the housing crisis all on its own. And it means that next year, we better be talking about what are the next steps. And, un- you know, t- unfortunately um, for the policymakers, you know, we don't have a bunch of other ones that are as kind of easy to pull off as the short-term rental rules. Um, but, you know, that's, I, I, I optimistically, we, we can say that's a problem for tomorrow. For today, we can say, you know, this is a step in the right direction. Yeah, what does a healthy STR market look like? Because of course, I think most listeners, including myself, uh, have used STRs. I use them when I go Absolutely. abroad. I mean, a lot of us have used them. I don't think any of us want to feel like we're depriving people of homes, right? I mean, I think so. What do you think a healthy STR market looks like? Yeah, so you know, a bunch of years ago, I did some research in New York City, looking at um, kind of where short-term rentals were active and kind of how they interacted um, with. You know, with neighborhoods. And one of the really interesting things that we found was that commercial short-term rentals, kind of large-scale operations, were actually um, kind of pricing home shares out of business. And the idea here is that if you if you are operating short-term rentals like a business, you kind of 
have the mentality of a hotel, which is you want to have butts in beds, so to speak. You know, you want to have occupancy every night. And so you cut prices to do that. Whereas if you've got just, you know, you're gone for one weekend or you have a spare bedroom, you're a lot more price sensitive because, you know, there's a point at which it just isn't worth the hassle of operating the short-term rental. And what we found is that the commercial players were driving home sharers out of the market. So when you ask kind of what a healthy short-term rental market looks like to me, it's one where, you know, let's just say like the little guy where, where kind of middle-class families have more access to Airbnb and these other kinds of platforms as a way to help make ends meet. Um, right now, they're just it, it's just too hard to compete against the commercial operators. But I think with, with these kinds of rules that we see kind of spreading across the country, and certainly BC has been a real hotbed for this, my expectation, it's not like people are going to stop wanting to stay in Airbnbs. So instead, the demand for short-term rental accommodation is going to be satisfied by middle-class families, people, homeowners who say, you know, we do have this, you know, this, this spare bedroom, or they say, we're going on vacation for two weeks. Why don't we get somebody staying at our place? And that'll pay, you know, half our mortgage payment for the month. Um, that's, that's to me, a healthy short-term rental market. And I actually am pretty optimistic that's the direction we're headed now. Yeah, because it feels like it was to some extent. I mean, and again, you know, I think a lot of us have probably, I mean, in my case, probably been guilty of staying in places that weren't that, but that the market got a little distorted. In fact, it was an easy market to distort if you look at it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, certainly I, I remember I had an experience, you know, traveling when I had a, a very, you know, a, a, my, my first kid, we just barely born, going with my partner to London, England, and we stayed in an Airbnb. There was somebody, you know, it was a family's home, they were out of town. And, you know, they also had a young kid. And so there were toys, you know, that it, it felt like a real paradise, right? Mm. And I just think that the chance that I would ever find that kind of thing now, like, you know, it just wouldn't happen, right? You stay in places which are, you know, their houses if, like in terms of the structure, but they have none of the feel of that. And I think we're, we're likely to head back to a more kind of intimate uh, style of home sharing where you actually are kind of living like a local, as Airbnb says. I think that's a good thing. Well, David, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. There was some good news today on the inflation front. I don't know if you've noticed if things have been coming down in price at all where you are. It feels like it's mighty slow going, but I guess every little bit helps uh, on that sense. So uh, today, uh, inflation dropped to 3.1% in October, down from 3.8% in September, mostly because of gasoline prices falling. But grocery prices were up faster than inflation, 5.4% year over year. That's down from 5.8% year over year in September. So a little relief on that side as well, but not um, dropping at the same pace that overall inflation is dropping. Mind you, food prices have sort of come down quite a bit uh, overall in the last several months. Don't forget, we're comparing to last year all the time, right? So there's that lag. Um, Today, one of Canada's major grocery chains, Empire, the parent company of stores like Sobeys, Safeway, uh, Longos, and IGA, announced a price freeze on thousands of items until January. Of course, the federal government has been sort of going after the big five grocery chains to take action to address uh, this food price issue. Uh, so is it making a difference? Is this price freeze a good thing, seeing how prices are actually coming down? Uh, Mike Von Masso is the OAC Chair in Food System Leadership and Professor of Food Economics at the University of Guelph. Mike, welcome back. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, a bit of a break today. I mean, inflation is cooling. Food inflation is too, but still, still, you can't look at 5.4% and sort of say, hey, that's great, because it's still pretty high. It's still pretty stubborn. Yeah. And, and Ben, I think there's a couple of things that we need to, to, to contextualize that with. It is true. Food prices are 5.4% higher than they were a year ago, and that's affecting us all. It means we're paying more. I, I think, though, if if I can take my uh, glass half full approach here, it's also it's also worth noting that food prices have actually come down 
four out of the last five months. And so we're seeing things get easier. You might have seen some things a little cheaper in the grocery store. It just means we're still more expensive than we were a year ago, but we've had a little bit of the pressure ease off in the last five or six months. Yeah, I think my grocery shopping brain is still stuck in like 2018 or maybe even 2012. So everything to me seems up. But you're right. We are. I am noticing more deals these days or things not jumping in price the way they were maybe a year ago. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's a bit sad, but but frankly, it's worth noting that the pace of increase has slowed and actually stopped. And, and what, we're, what we're seeing in that annual number are price increases that we've reflected sort of 10, 11 months ago and, and, and adopted. Uh, but, but we are still, because it's still pretty fresh, we're still, we still get that sticker shock of there, there's this concept called a reference price. And it's what we compare the price that we see with to determine if we're getting a good, jo- a, a good deal or not. And our reference prices are still lagging behind. So we still are, are, are experiencing sticker shock. Yeah. My reference price for, you know, chocolate digestives is $299 and it hasn't been to, or $250. It hasn't been $250 on sale for, for quite a while. What's happening? Is, is it just supply chains or things are sorting themselves out at long last? Well, I think we've adapted to many of those factors that you, you know you and I have talked about in the in the past. The world has sort of adjusted to the situation in the Ukraine. Uh, we've had a reasonable glo- growing season in most of Canada, you know, notwithstanding some drought on the prairies. So, a, a lot of those factors that were contributing to price increases have not occurred again. And so it looks like we might be in for some smoother sailing going forward. That said, floods or droughts can happen very quickly and and are by their nature tough to predict. So things could go off the rails again very quickly. But but right now, sort of knock on wood, things are looking reasonable. And there's and there's reason to believe that the numbers uh, will continue. The annual numbers will continue to to improve as we move forward. Sobeys came out today and announced sort of an expansion of their price freeze. I gather it's sort of common practice amongst grocers to freeze prices over the holiday period or over the sort of the two months that are December and January. But Sobeys has now said they're going to extend that. What should we make of that? Is it uh, is it window dressing or is it something better than that? Well, Ben, I told you a minute ago I was going to look at this with my glass half full. Right, it's uh, time I'm, your 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 grocery cart. It's time to do the half empty grocery <laughs> cart now, right? Yeah, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be a bit more cynical. Uh, you know, as I said to you a minute ago, we've seen prices come down five of the last six months or four of the last five months. I think is is more accurate. And so, if prices are coming down, a price freeze is not really a gift. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it, in fact, it, it may be a way for them to increase their profits. Oh, interesting. It, interesting. And, yeah, and, I hadn't and, thought about so, it. Yes. And, and so and so to me, you know, it is common practice. They said so a year ago. Yep. They said they've expanded it a bit more. But at the very least, they're doing it at a time when many people are looking at that 5.4 number and saying, oh, this is a good thing. No one's looking at the last five months and saying, well, yeah, they've been They've been frozen or down largely for the last five months. So this isn't really, it might not be a bad thing. It, it, it's not sort of this huge concession to Canadian consumers and, 
I'm not sure they should be taking a victory lap on that by any yeah. stretch. Yeah, we're freezing prices as they're falling. It makes it sound <laughs> a lot less appealing than, than the headline might have. Uh, are, are the are the grocers feeling any of the pressure? I mean, we know that the federal government's been talking a lot about trying to get grocers to to do something. Uh, I don't think they have a carrot or a stick uh, in this one, really, or at least none they seem to want to use. Uh, has that pressure been felt at all, do you think, by uh, by big grocery chains? I know they're meant to come up with, I mean, we keep hearing about, about pressure on them to do something, but I haven't seen much in the way of results yet. Well, and, and, and frankly, their actions would suggest they're not feeling a lot of pressure. We heard earlier this week that Loblaw's revenues were up uh, in, in their most recent quarter. Uh, they saw same-store sales at their discount stores up 20%, I think. So, so the grocers aren't feeling pressure out there yet. Now, they're seeing a shift. People are going more to the discount flags, or some people are, not all of us. You know, people are people are maybe changing their buying behaviors, but we still need to buy food. So so I don't think the impetus for for grocers to sort of be super proactive has been significant. And 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 frankly, you know, I, I, I don't think the government has handled it particularly well either. I think they've done Canadians a disservice by saying, you know, look, the issue is the grocers where when when we know if they're contributing at all, it's 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 not very much. The, the grocers are, are are doing what I would do is say, look, we're going to freeze prices, even though they've been coming down for 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 five months, and 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 hope to a degree that this goes away. I, I think, frankly, that the government is struggling with the whole affordability crisis. They're struggling with with low poll numbers, and they are not being terribly strategic and sort of look, oh, no, there's the problem over there, or there's the problem over there. And because it's not a well-thought-out strategy, I don't think the, the, the retailers are feeling a lot of pressure to respond in kind. Mike Von Masso is a professor of food economics at the University of Guelph. We're talking about food inflation, inflation numbers out today. It's coming down a bit uh, into territory that's slightly more comfortable, I would think. But for food, it's still at 5.4% year over year. That's down from 5.8% uh, in September year over year. But as Mike was pointing out, food prices have actually been falling for several months now overall, which is a good thing for consumers. Uh, Mike, I mean, every time the you know, the finance minister was out talking about the need for competition in the grocery industry. And I thought, well, isn't that great? But but how do you do that? Because, you know, I lived in London for a while and food comp and, you know, they've had a huge problem with grocery prices in the UK, but they do have a pretty competitive market. I mean, they have the European discounters are in there, the Aldi's and the Lytle's and so on. When I look out at the Canadian landscape, it doesn't feel like that's anywhere close. Yeah, I think I think you're right. We have some concentration. We have more concentration than in most other countries. So, so I'll I'll give you a yeah, but yep, we do yeah. have concentration. But I'm not sure that 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 it really necessarily means that we're suffering. Uh, you know, I I think if you look at one example is our rates of food price inflation have actually been lower than most of the rest of the developed world, and and so. That that would at the very least may not comment on on competition, but at the very least would suggest that that competition isn't making us worse off than other places, and that that other factors are at play. I think you know before the break you talked about about Loblaw's profits, and the absolute number yes is more than they've ever made before, but their revenue was up too, partly because of inflation, partly because more people are shopping in their discount stores, but. 
if you look at the percentage profit of revenue, it's relatively unchanged. So that's right. saying that they're not taking advantage necessarily uh, of the situation. Frankly, I would say our risk is higher of, of profiteering post-inflation as prices come down than it was when they go up. So uh, might there be an issue with competition? Yeah, we should definitely look at it. Uh, I did a quick study of, of the income as a percentage of revenue for three Canadian stores and two American ones. And if you look sort of pre and, and, and it's fraught because there are, you know, there are things like pharmacy business and markets and, and those sorts of things that we need to consider. Canada's before this sort of inflationary period was slightly higher than the U S which may suggest that there's some concentration issues. But if you look at what's happened since the pandemic, it would suggest that there's maybe not greedflation. If anything, companies like Loblaws, who have more market power, have put more pressure back on their on their suppliers uh, and maybe expanded r- profits that way. I still think our market is pretty competitive. You know, there's no love lost between Sobeys and and Loblaws and Walmart. You know, they fight for our business. You know, getting you in the store is important to them. We get flyers every week. You know, you look at what's on special. Canadians respond to that. And and I think that that while it's worth looking at, I'm not sure. I know for sure that getting more grocers in the Canadian market is not a panacea that will bring food prices down to the levels that we're at four or five years ago. No. I mean, part of this is, is I mean... It- Looking back at previous uh, incarnations of this same line, it was big banks, right? The big banks were always the target. And now it seems like big grocers have become the easy target for uh, for governments trying to look like they're doing something about affordability. When in fact, I think we all understand that the food business is incredibly complicated and the supply chains that feed it are complicated. So fixing it, you can't just target one thing and fix it that way. Clear. No, I, 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 you know, and, and frankly, it's irresponsible that the government is trying to do that. It, it sets us up for disappointment because no matter what they do with the grocers, even if you even if you drove their profit to zero, we would have still had higher prices today than we did a year ago. So the absolute value of the profits that grocers make are less than the 5.4 percent that that prices have gone up in the last year. So I think that that, that I think that that's important context. So pointing fingers at the grocers is setting up an expectation that. Even if they could do something, prices would come down, and that's simply not going to be the case. And so, yeah. I, I, th- I think it's a it's a losing strategy that the government has undertaken. I, I, having spent time in Ottawa covering these things, I get the impression that they're thinking prices are going to come down anyway. So they're going to be yeah. able to take take credit for this by saying we put the gears to the grocers and look what happened. When in fact, it had nothing to do with them. They'll just hope no one pays attention. Well, Ben, uh, you and I are equally cynical then, because uh, I said the same thing when they called uh, the grocers to the mat before Thanksgiving. I said, if you look back at the last few months, things are getting better. Uh, and maybe they say, maybe they'll come out in two months and say, look, look at what shaking a stick at those grocers did. Yes, they've, they've been cowering. They've been cowering and lowering their pr- freezing their prices as prices come down. Mike, as yeah. always, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. And that theme brings you back to being about, I don't know, six and home from school sick and watching the prices, right? It used to be on at 5 p.m. where I grew up in Montreal. It was on from five to six. It was so popular. 
It was so popular in Montreal with people of all languages that it actually made the English language newscast in Montreal, which I've worked for, so no offense to them. I'm not trying to slight them here. It made it the most popular newscast in the city, mainly because its lead-in was so absolutely powerful. The Price is Right with Bob Barker back in the day. Uh, Canadians, as Canadians, as we know, have a tendency to take notice when this country is mentioned in a cool way uh, on a U.S. TV program. And a week ago Monday, that was exactly the case on The Price is Right. Drew Carey, of course, now the host. One of the prizes on offer for someone who'd made it up onto stage, one of those three um, three games you get to play. I'm going to forget the name now. Games you get to play. Uh, one of them was a six-day trip to beautiful Canada. That's what it was billed as, a six-day, all-expenses-paid trip to beautiful Canada. It turned out that what it actually was, was a six-day trip to New Westminster, which is on the Lower Mainland, near not far from Vancouver, uh, and a stay at the Inn on the Quay. And um, Philip Fitzpatrick, an Arizona retiree, that was his prize up for grabs if he could uh, win the game. So I think he had to come within a certain a certain dollar amount of the actual price. Um, and he didn't. He didn't. He did his homework. He's an avid fan of the show. And he wound up way off. He overestimated the price by about 3000 bucks. So he guessed about 8200 8300 when it was, in fact, 5300 or so. Uh, even the host was surprised by the final price. Have a listen. $8,280. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. No! What? I wanted to go with 4000 What? 5000 That's it? That's way less than I thought it was going to be. We haven't had a $5,000 trip in a while. Philip, don't blame yourself for that one. That was a tough one. There you go. So, Philip, I mean, clearly he was disappointed at having lost, and everyone accepted that it was a tough one. Uh, $8,280, he bet, he guessed, $5,280 was the cost. Um, but it got a lot of attention in the Vancouver area. And you have to understand New Westminster a little bit because it's considered to be a little bit out of the, out of the way, right? So if you're coming to stay in sort of downtown Vancouver, you probably won't find yourself in New West. But it's not a bad place to stay. Listen, there's a SkyTrain that goes out there. It's accessible to downtown. Um, and the Communities Tourism Board brushed aside any of the snickering that was going on about this and decided that it was, in fact, a golden opportunity to snatch a marketing win from Philip's Price is Right loss. Uh, they hopped onto social media and started a Search for Philip campaign, hashtag Search for Philip. Um, and, well, the episode had been shot back in August, right? So that's how they do it. So Philip had been there for his birthday back then. He was already back home in Arizona and had been for months at this point. Uh, so the man they were searching for was actually in the Phoenix area. Lo and behold, they managed to get in touch with him and extend a very special offer. Call it a make good on his bad guest. Philip Fitzpatrick, Price is Right contestant, and Gerardo Como, a Coro rather, Executive Director, Tourism New Westminster, both join me now to tell me all about it. Uh, welcome both. Thank you. Congratulations. Yeah, great. Thank you very much for the invitation, Ben. Happy to be here. Philip, uh, what a whirlwind. What a whirlwind. I mean, you left, I guess it was back in August that it was taped, uh, The Price is Right, which must have been a thrill in of itself. And all of a sudden, you find yourself sort of sought, sought after well, after it airs. What was that like? Well, I, I knew there'd be a little bit of a whirlwind after the show aired like a week ago yesterday because friends and family were going to watch and stuff. But I had no clue any of this other stuff was going on until Friday morning when a friend of, friend of mine from college 
uh, texted me and said, have you seen these posts? I'm like, what are you talking about? And so I spent most of the rest of the day researching, you know, who, who are these people? You know, and I, I teased uh, Gerardo that uh, I grew up in the era of there's an Egyptian prince or you know, Ethiopian prince that wants to give you money. Yeah. You know, so, you know I, I was afraid of it being a scam. And uh, so even when the first reporter called me Sunday, uh, she goes, is this Philip? I'm like, maybe. That's <laughs> <laughs> good to be suspicious. <laughs> Sometimes it is too good to be true. Tell me exactly. about being, being on The Price is Right. I mean, you, not only were you in the audience, which is in of itself pretty awesome, you get called down, plus you win. And then you get up and, you know, obviously it, it didn't work out on the new Westminster trip. But what a thrill. It really was. I'm I'm sort of a Price is Right geek. I retired about a year and a half ago. So like my morning routine during the week is get up, make breakfast, you know, say my prayers. Then I watch Price is Right. You know, so I have a buddy that we text back and forth, you know, during the show to say, you know, oh, this guy's cute or that prize was overpriced or whatever. And uh, yeah. and so we, we just have I just have a good time with it. It's fun. It's awesome. So, I mean, I was watching, I rewatched the episode, obviously, and and saw you. And I was pretty, I mean, I could see why you would have been up high. A, these days, it's hard to know how much anything costs in the travel business. Yes. And B, uh, I, I don't know if there was a U.S.-Canadian dollar conversion going on there, too, uh, because it was significant. At 5280, it was a lot lower than I thought, than I think you would think it would be. I think you all agreed exactly. on the show. So I've researched prices for the last year and a half, and uh, I'd never seen a trip that nice at that reasonable of a price. I mean, there are like two or three day weekend trips that cost almost that much. So I was very, very surprised. And from I think Drew was being more than just nice when he thought it was uh, thought it was you know way lower than what he thought too. Yeah. Although Gerardo, a great advertisement for New Westminster. Did you have anything to do with this? I, I don't know how price packages work on the prices, right? Is this something that that's set up by by you guys? No, we were as, as surprised as everyone else. It was a hotel that got contacted by the uh -huh. price, right? I think it was in May. It was only one person at the hotel that knew about it. So even the hotel was surprised about it. <laughs> so it came as an unexpected thing to all of us, and we were just very happy. Yeah. And so you all of a sudden decide that you see an opportunity to clutch to clutch victory from the jaws of Philip's defeat. Uh, how did that how did you come about? How did that go about? You started this hashtag campaign. I guess it was just a great idea to try to, to because it got a lot of talk. People were talking about it before you set out to find him. We found out about this because one X user or Twitter user posted about it. Like, hey, look, new West is on TV. So um why don't you do something about it? Like, why don't you invite Philip to New West? But they were just joking. And so we talked about it here at the office. I talked with uh, Jasmine, my marketing coordinator, and we were like, okay, should we do this? Like, we don't have a budget anymore. <laughs> it's the <laughs> end of the year. Right. <laughs> let's, let's, let's try to do it. And it'd be great to show the Canadian hospitality and to show everyone why, even if we are that close to Vancouver, if we, even if we have very nice and valuable things here in New West, we are still very affordable. And the thing is, a lot of people are doing actually that, are staying here in New Westminster at very nice hotels for a much affordable and valuable price and still enjoying the city of Vancouver, which is downtown Vancouver. is only 25 minutes away on the train from us. Or even if they are visiting anywhere else in the greater Vancouver area, we're right in the heart of Metro Vancouver. So it just makes sense. They would enjoy New West. They would enjoy Vancouver. So they get two for the price of one. Actually, two for the price of less than one. 
Yeah, yeah. Taylor, Tw- Taylor Swift fans pay, pay attention to this yeah. you're com- coming <laughs> exactly. to Vancouver next year. Um, exactly. There's an opportunity. Philip, at you, I mean, you've been to Canada, right? But not, but not to do, not to. I, I don't know about Vancouver, but not, to, not to New Westminster. Not to, not to the western part of Canada. I grew up on Lake Erie in Ohio, in right. Ohio, and so uh, I've been to Toronto, been to Niagara Falls, of course, been to Montreal. My family used to take a ferry across Lake Erie to have a picnic in Canada when I was a, when I was a kid back in the day. Um, so I've been to Canada a lot. I've also worked with folks from Canada. I've, I, I worked with folks from Blackberry that's in Waterloo. So I know a lot about the area. I've been joked with Geraldo that uh, I even know about Tim Hortons. We used to have a Tim Hortons in Columbus. Right. Where, that's where Wendy's is based, you know, when they still own Tim Hortons. So Timbits are my life. You know, oh, so well, you're, you're going to be able to be easy to find. When you come <laughs> we don't back. have those here in Phoenix. So, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Well, if you grew up on the shores of Lake Erie, you're basically an honorary Canadian. You know that, right? Anybody, exactly. Any, anybody who's anybody from who anybody who knows what a cold winter is like is always uh, part one of us. So we say. Uh, so, Arado, uh, what have you what have you then come up with? What 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 will Philip be uh, be doing, or what have you what have you done to make up for his prize loss? Okay, so we initially thought we should give him the same prize, or more or less the same price because we were planning on taking Philip around so he wouldn't need that car rental. We're going to pamper him. We're going to take him around the city, around Vancouver. And of course, giving him uh, and his travel companion the time to, to just forget about us because we don't want it to be just about interviews. And (laughs) he's a local celebrity right now. So we need to balance that out with them actually enjoying the trip. Right. Initially the trip included six nights at the inner key hotel it included uh, breakfast, the, well, the flights, and the car rental. So in this case, it's going to be four nights at the Inetiki Hotel. We we got offered six nights by the hotel, but it was a little hard for for Philip, I believe, to to accommodate that in, in his calendar. So we're going for four nights. Instead of flying from LA, um, well, it just makes sense to fly them from Phoenix because Philip's is right there. And we didn't want – he was very kind. He was offering to drive to LA but there is a direct flight Phoenix to Vancouver. There are actually a couple of options and a couple of airlines doing it. So that's going to be the trip. Um, we're going to be picking Philip at the airport. So if you want to join us, of course, <laughs> that'd be <laughs> Philip, great. Philip, this sounds like an even better trip than the one you didn't win. This is more than I ever could have imagined. I mean, I, I've, I've just been in shock. It's just surreal. Right. And, and Gerardo, you mentioned already, I mean, people are lining up to wine and dine. Well, wine, wine, maybe dine. The mayor wants to bring him up for lunch. I, think, I mean, I think beer and yeah. dine is the beer, word. Beer <laughs> are you are you set to sort of with all the attention? Like people are going to be there to pay attention when you show up. I guess you're going to have to do some uh, you're going to have to do some, um, you know, some autograph signing and some interviews when you land. That's all a bit daunting. Well, it's it's sort of funny because my friend that's coming with me, we know each other for a couple decades, and he goes, I'm really going to owe you after this trip. I'm like, oh, no, I'm <laughs> going to owe you not. big time because it's going to be attention to Dwayne most of the time. And so just... Uh, you know, he's fine with it. You know, we've traveled together several times and, and he knows me. And so <laughs> <laughs> it should be great. Gerardo, uh, uh, I mean, you've already said about what you, what you have set up. Do, do we know when this, I guess, do, do we know when this is happening or are we not allowed to say when this is happening just yet? Yes, we know it's from the 5th to the 9th of December. Oh, right. And, awesome. And there's more to it. Like it's not yeah. only the hotel, not only taking, taking them around on tours and, and enjoying both cities, but also, we're going to take them to very nice 
uh, unique international gastronomy experiences in town. We have so many options. And the funny thing is that now that this has been viral, everyone wants to join the show. So we will have to decide where to go because we have so yeah. many options right now. Uh, you know, they're gonna have to rent you a bus when you get when you get to town just to take yeah, everyone around. Be just a, a buffet, you know, from the whole city. So they are also going to have. Well, you didn't know this, Philip. It's not only going to the Hidden Wonders Magic Show, renowned internationally. The performer has performed for the for the Queen of England at some point. He was in Disney for many years of his life, so he's a great magician. But it's it's going to be two VIP tickets. Not only regular tickets, we are also going to take them to one or maybe the two breweries that we have in town, which are still an oak and ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still it's hard to decide because the two of them are very good. But then a lot of people were like, hey, I want to join. I want to meet Philip and, and I want to have a picture with him, buy him beer or buy him lunch. So we have the mayor and other city and province representatives from the government. Of course, this is not about politics at all. No, but everyone wants to get in, right? Exactly. (laughs) Just the way way it works. What's cool about this, I mean, I grew up in Montreal, so I knew that cities around Montreal always struggled to try to get attention paid to what they had to offer. Uh, But these days, with just the way that spread works and public transit and so on, exurbs or suburbs, so to speak, uh, they have a lot to offer, right? And sometimes that gets kind of lost in lost in the fold a little bit. Yes, I, I mean, it happens. We are, I think, the destinations that have a good strategy, even if they're not the main city in the area, as happens to, as you said, like cities around Montreal, cities around Toronto, uh, cities around Vancouver, or around Paris, Rome, or Rio de Janeiro, whatever, <laughs> right? Like it happens in all the world. So you can either fight it or make it a strategy and join the big destination and work together. And that's what we have been doing. People are staying here. People are enjoying New West and enjoying Vancouver all together, saving a lot of man, a lot of money. And they also have a lot of things that we can offer, like the most beautiful uh, riverfront in the province. Uh, we also have the largest in Solier, and we are the first capital city of the province. They are. So, they are indeed. And I live in the yeah. I live in the other one in Victoria, right? Or the new one. Uh, exactly. Philip, what's what's on your to-do list? You must have a bucket list already of things you want to do. It is beautiful out west, by the way. It might just make sure to bring bring an umbrella. That's the only thing I'd say. Yeah, I said like I said, growing up in the Midwest, I'm used to the weather this time of year. So it's been a while, but you know, I'm fine with it. I mean, we just had rain in Phoenix for the first time in two months. So <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, the, the main thing I wanted to, that I wanted to see outside of the of all the wonderful things in the New West was uh, some of the cities I've traveled to. I've seen some of the Olympic uh, venues or what they've done with them after the Olympics. So I've been to L.A., been to Montreal, been to Salt Lake City. So I'm uh, Atlanta as well. So I'm excited about that possibility as well. I think you mentioned, I think Harold mentioned a, a museum or something. Well, Philip, it feels like you won twice. I mean, it honestly feels like exactly. you won twice here. Isn't that isn't that cool? <laughs> well, yeah. Listen, we welcome. We look forward to welcoming you in just a few weeks' time, uh, Philip and Gerardo. Thank you uh, so much for your for your time tonight, and and congratulations to both of you for for making this making this happen. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the invitation, Ben. 